We want to fuel a movement that reaches people and renews communities. We believe this is an exciting next step and that God has placed it before us. Christ Church, it's time to reach. 1 Corinthians 9.19 Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach as many as possible. REACH is a two-year initiative aimed at accelerating our efforts to organize, fund, and implement this vision. Well, I I think I'm excited about REACH. It it just really has the chance of stretching a lot of folks' faith, our own included, to sort of dive in and do more. And while that can be daunting, it's also exciting because I've seen it before and I see how it changes folks and has changed us. We don't view church as just a Sunday thing. It's not just a place we go or a thing we do on Sundays. I think for us, church is, it's a family, it's a community, and I think that's really what motivates us, the way that we've seen um, God work in our lives. We want other people to experience that and see that. I'm learning to really know who God is and where does He want me to go? How does He care about me? It's creating in me a desire to uh, reach out to other people and tell them more, to be more, you know, out there telling more people about God. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the future. We're excited to be a part of Christ's work through Christ Church and to see Him move in our community and the community surrounding us for years to come. We know that uh, God has given us so many resources uh, that we're so blessed to have, and we want to be good stewards of those resources, and REACH is such a great way for for us to give back uh, for all the beautiful things God has done in our lives. Tonight's commitment to REACH means that uh, we'll be able to reach more families in the community and reach more uh, kids with the gospel, and so we're excited to have that chance. We've been at Christ Church for 20 years, and we've never felt more energized than we do now because of the initiative, and there's so many different ways to plug in, and it's just uh, a wide open invitation. Part of the REACH program that excites me is the anticipation of planting six global churches. We will be doing a lot in the community with multi-sites and with Matthew Homes in North Chicago, but there is also uh, a plan to go abroad and to work with our partners in Ghana and in India and in Turkey to plant global churches. And it will be a legacy that we leave behind for many, many years to come. One of the things that we enjoy personally are the different outreach programs that we have at church. With REACH, you see how we're extending that out a bit more to have an impact, to grow spiritually, but know that you have an impact not only locally within your community, but globally as well, so I think that's important. What's uh, most exciting to me about REACH is to reach out to other communities and uh, believers uh, to help them and to help them grow. With God's help, we can accomplish together what none of us could accomplish on earth. Are you ready to make this vision a reality? Join me as we extend our REACH.
Well, uh, yes, this is a pivot point for us. Thanks so much to all of you who have jumped in, and that's true here, that's true at uh, the 01, upstairs at uh, Crossroads and at Highland Park. Uh, thank you. I think this is, a, this is an exciting moment. So if you have already made a, a pledge, great. If not, we're still looking to try and get you to step up, and I think everybody wins. I, I, I sincerely believe everybody wins when we give and when we serve, starting with us, and so uh, uh, this will unfold. Well, today we begin uh, a new series. It's on um, this controversial book called Galatians, and it is dense. It is full of ideas. It is full of very important ideas about who we are, how we relate to God, how we change and grow, how we get better. Uh, it is all packed in this book, and I'm excited about it. So I suspect most of you uh, are aware that for the last 20, 25 years, there has been this comedian from uh, the Deep South, Jeff Foxworthy, who's sort of made his livelihood really pivoting around one line, you just might be a redneck if, right? He sort of broke on the scene. It's been the staple of his stand-up. There's been coffee mugs, calendars, books, TV shows, everything around this thing. You just might be a redneck if you walk your kid to school because you're both in the same grade. You just might be a redneck if you mowed the grass and found your car. You just might be a redneck if you spent more on fireworks than on your education, right? I mean, it's just that he's made a livelihood of, of these things. Now, I'm not certain whether or not I can tell redneck jokes anymore. I mean, you sort of can't say many jokes. So I'm going to move quickly because it's not really the redneck part of this that I'm interested in. I'm here to say you just might be religious if you think God loves you because you showed up at church today. You just might be religious if you think that God is going to bless you this week in some way, because you showed up at church. You just might be religious if you think you're better than the people who didn't show up at church. You just might be religious if you think you've got some kind of deal with God that pivots on how you act. Now, I'll admit there's some problems with my, you just might be religious thing. First of all, it's not very funny. Uh, secondly, it's a little confusing. So some of you are going, well, wait a minute, am I supposed to be religious? I mean, this is a pastor, I'm in church, is religion a good thing, a bad thing? How am I supposed to think about this? Well, it all sort of depends on how we define religion. The dictionary says that religion is mankind's response to God or humanity human beings' relationship to that which they regard as holy, sacred, spiritual, or divine. In his, um, in his book, Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, David Dark says religion is, quote, the best word for seeing, naming, confessing, and really waking up to what we're ultimately after in everything we do. In Sky Jatani's book, What's Wrong with Religion?, he defines religion as our efforts to control an uncontrollable world by bribing God. And he makes a lot of uh, an example of religious behavior by pointing to a tweet 
by Stevie Johnson, an NFL receiver, after he dropped a game-winning touchdown pass. Let's watch uh, a one-minute clip of him dropping the pass. First and ten. Petrie with a nice block at the guard. Going deep. He's got Johnson. Oh, he dropped the ball. That would have been the game winner. And we said that Fitzpatrick was fearless. He takes the shot down the field, working against Taylor with Clark coming over, and all he has to do is hold on to it, and the Bills are going to have their third consecutive win. He has five drop passes unofficially today. Five. Amazing. Fitzpatrick cannot believe it. So... That afternoon, after dropping the pass, Stevie Johnson tweets out this. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. (laughs) So, clearly, Johnson thought he had a deal with God. And the deal was, I praise you, I give you credit, and I catch game-winning passes. My life works. So, Jatani goes on to say that uh, religion is our efforts to get our way. It's our efforts to bribe God to get things that we otherwise might not get. There's one other uh, video that I could show you. I'll just say, some of you have seen it, uh, and it's a little bit too long to play. But uh, about three years ago, Jefferson Betheke came out with a spoken word video called Jesus Over Religion, in which he came out sort of blasting religion. And he said, uh, what, would, what would you say if I told you that Jesus came to abolish religion? And it went viral. Uh, millions, tens of millions of people downloaded this video. And uh, it really resonated because there is a lot of people who think of religious people as being Smug, smarmy, hypocritical, self-righteous. So it went viral. Now the challenge is you can also define religion as sort of the, the, the rules or the rituals, the patterns, the behaviors, the disciplines that we adopt in order to move closer to God or in order to be more loving to others. Kevin uh, DeYoung, a pastor and an author, responded to the Jefferson Betheke video by saying, Jefferson, Jesus was a Jew. He went to the synagogue. He observed Jewish holy days. He said that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus founded the church. He launched both a ritual meal and a ceremonial washing. If religion is characterized by doctrine, commands, rituals, and structure, it's not exactly accurate to say Jesus hated religion. How are we to understand and define religion? We could spend hours looking at different definitions and still not get there. As a matter of fact, 10 years ago, uh, I went to Martin Marty who is sort of a towering figure in religious circles. And I just want to qualify this. So if you go, if you go to Trinity down the, down the street uh, to, to take classes to train to be a pastor, or if you go to a Christian college, 
then you are going to sign up for theology classes. And theology classes start by studying God and who he is and God's revelation to us through the Bible. If you go to a state school or a secular private college, you will sign up for religion classes. And religion classes are very different than theology classes. Religion classes start by looking at our behavior. So religion departments increasingly are found in in uh, sociology departments, in anthropology departments. That's where you increasingly are taking religion classes. And it looks at human activity in order to understand the world and ultimate purposes and to try and figure out how to live and how to be right with the powers that be. So Dr. Marty is a very celebrated academic. He's got more honorary PhDs than anyone else alive today. He was the president of the American Academy of Religion. He uh, received a presidential commission to study religion in America. He uh, received the, uh, the Lincoln Medallion in Illinois for his contributions to religion. He won the National Book Award for his five-volume encyclopedia on religion. So, I mean, it, it basically, you can't go higher in religious circles than Martin Marty. So the question for Dr. Marty was, how do you define religion? He was at a lecture. After the lecture, there's Q&A. How do you define religion? And he smiles, and he pauses, and he looks around, and he says, religion is the kind of thing that I write about in the encyclopedia of religion. In other words... I can't define it either, right? So it is a very challenging thing to define. Um, When we go to the Bible, we find that the word religion occurs five times. And it's essentially neutral. Uh, it, It refers to Judaism. It refers at one point to the faith of uh, the practices, the, the repentance and, and humility and service that characterizes the early church. It, it also uh, refers to the Pharisees and their externally motivated sort of hypocritical, self-righteous, smug, negative activity. Also is found in James chapter 1 where James says, This is pure and undefiled religion to care for widows and orphans in their distress. So the word religion in the Bible is used both positively and negatively. But I would argue that today, being told that you're religious is not generally a good thing. And when we look at the book of Galatians, Paul is writing against an externally motivated effort to try and please God. So I'm going to define it for the purposes of our study. I'm going to define religion this way. Religion is believing that following rules and rituals makes us good people better than others and qualifies us for God's love. Religion is believing that following rules and rituals makes us good people better than others and it qualifies us for God's love. And what we're going to see is that Paul comes out shooting with both barrels against religious behavior. So, having defined religion, there's, there's three things I need you to hear. First of all, you are religious. So am I. We can't help it. 
We were wired to, to have lives that have meaning. We are going to seek meaning. We're going to seek significance. It's just what we do. And so we are religious at the core. And this is surprising to many people. So in the 70s, there was a theory that came out that said, uh, it's called the secularization theory, that said that society is going to become more and more secular, less and less religious. And by the turn of the, the millennium, so, you know, 17, 18 years ago, by the turn of the millennium, uh, religion would effectively be wiped out. So in about the 90s, the advocates of secularization theory started to say, uh, apparently we got this one wrong. <laughs> the world is not becoming less religious. It's actually becoming more religious. And I recently ran across this quote. Uh, it, it's, I ran across it in, a, in an Atlantic Monthly article, but it's a quote uh, from the Foreign Policy Journal. And it says this, The new atheist writers are wrong. Not only are they wrong about religion and They're also wrong about politics because they are wrong about human nature. Homo sapiens are also homo religious. We are meaning-seeking creatures, while dogs, as far as we know, do not worry about the canine condition. So we worry about the human condition. I worry about my heart. I worry about, you know, my conscience. I worry about guilt. I worry about uh, significance, right, That the human condition. While uh, dogs don't worry about the canine condition or agonize about their mortality, humans fall very easily into despair if we don't find significance in our lives. So God isn't going anywhere, and when we treat religion as something to be derided, dismissed, or destroyed, we risk amplifying its worst faults. Whether we like it or not, God is here to stay. It's time we find a way to live with him in a balanced and compassionate manner. So, I would say, look, this is, this is part of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He, he says we can suppress the knowledge of God, and some people do, but we are not without guilt because God has made his presence known. And he has made his presence known not only through creation. We can tell certain things about the creator by looking at creation. He has made his presence known by, by imprinting something on our heart. We know that there is a God. And we can fight it, but we are always looking for meaning. And consequently, we engage in religious activity. Everyone, everywhere. Everyone is religious, even the people who say they're not religious. Christopher Hitchens, Charles Dawkins, Freud, everybody is religious. So, number one, religion, we are religious. Number two, this can have upsides, Generally speaking, not universally, but generally speaking, religion calls on us to be kind to other people. Now, there's an idea out there that all religions are the same. It's crazy. It's nonsense. Uh, All religions are not the same. But in the ethical realm, there is often overlap between religions, and it calls on us to be nicer to other people. So there are some upsides to being religious, but, and this is the big point here, religion doesn't work, and Christianity is the most anti-religious religion out there. And I'm, I'm deliberately sort of making a confusing statement, because there is a sense in which we can talk about the Christian religion. It is a set of 
practices and rituals. It is, it is church and it is communion and it is, and it is baptism. There are practices and patterns and habits that Jesus has invited us into that we could define as religion. But you have to understand, Christianity is the most anti-religious religion out there because it says right out of the gate, we cannot reach up to God. God has to reach down. We are too broken. We are too fundamentally broken. The human condition is too dark. Sin, we are, we are dead because of our sin. God has to rescue us. So, <clears throat> this is what we see Paul going after when he writes uh, the letter to the Galatians. And so... Uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Galatians chapter 1, uh, that's where we are going to start. Now, um, you need to understand the context in which Galatians occurs. So the Bible has the big two sections. It's got the Old Testament, 39 books written and finished 400 years before Christ shows up on the scene. This is, this is the, it's got the creation and all the stuff early on, but then basically we're following Abraham and his descendants all the promises made about a Messiah that God is going to send someone to rescue us. All of that is in the Old Testament, the 39 books, the Hebrew Scriptures, Hebrew Bible. That's the Old Testament. Then we have the New Testament. And the New Testament is comprised of four books that tell us about Christ. We call them the Gospels. Then there's the book of Acts, 30, the first 30 years of what happens in the church. Then there's a bunch of letters. And then there's the book of Revelation. So the letters include letters written by Peter, James, John, and Paul. And Paul writes most of the letters. And he writes letters to churches that he planted that are having problems. So this, these are the letters to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians. These are all letters that Paul has written, including the letter to the Galatians. He also writes letters to Timothy and Titus and, you know, Philemon. And so there's, there's letters as well. But Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church, a series of churches, some small churches in northern Turkey, an area called Galatia. And Paul is, is an apostle, as we're going to see. So he comes along late. Paul writes Galatians, and you can't miss the irony here, <clears throat> Paul was like the most religious person you could ever meet. And he's going to write a book against religion. So Paul is a Pharisee. He is, uh, he's a Jew. He's part of the, the most religious Jewish party. He gets, goes, gets all the best training in all the religious craft. And he is against Christians. He is persecuting Christians when Jesus Christ strikes him down. His conversion is one of the most dramatic conversions we ever see. It's in Acts chapter 9. And, and he, he blinds Paul, knocks him down, and, and, and he asks, why are you, you know, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is confused, like, who are you? What's going on? How, how is this happening? And Paul comes to understand that Jesus Christ, who he had been trying to push down, saying wasn't the Messiah, was actually the Messiah, and Paul's life has a very dramatic change. <clears throat> and he's off the picture for a number of years, uh, being trained, being nurtured, you know, sort of understanding the Christian faith. Then he emerges as a leader in the church. 
And in fact, from Acts chapter 9 on, Paul is sort of the, the, the number two uh, star. I mean, Jesus is obviously the star of, of the Bible and the star of the book of Acts. But the first 10 chapters of Acts, it's mostly about Peter. And then from, from once Paul comes onto the scene, it's mostly about Paul. And Paul is going to go on three missionary trips. These are, these are multi-year church planning efforts. So uh, the church in Jerusalem does not get around to this. It's very hard for churches to get around to reaching out. Churches want to look in. The church in Jerusalem looks in. They had been told, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, by Jesus, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. But the church in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem until persecution comes, and then it scatters them. Paul and Barnabas are at a small church in Antioch. Doesn't have many leaders, doesn't have much money, but they said, we got to get about reaching out. And so they head out. Paul and Barnabas are the first missionaries and they go into Europe and they follow a basic pattern. They go into a town and Paul goes to the synagogue and there he teaches and he, he argues that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So he uses the Old Testament to argue Jesus is the Messiah. This is what we've been waiting for. And some Jews will come to faith. He then, when he sort of finishes there and everybody there has said, okay, enough already, we've heard it, uh, we're in or we're out. He then goes out into the marketplace. He goes someplace else and he talks to the Gentiles. And he talks to the Gentiles about coming to faith. And then he usually does this until he causes a riot uh, and he gets thrown in jail. And then when he gets out of jail, he pulls everybody that believes together and he starts a church. And uh, he nurtures this church, he teaches people, he disciples people, eventually he appoints leaders, and they go on to the next town. Uh, and it's different when he gets to the next town. I mean, he goes to the synagogue and then he goes to the marketplace and then he causes a riot. But it's different after the first place, because now when he's in jail, he writes a letter to the church that he's just been at. And so what looked like a bad thing, Paul's in jail, actually turns out to be a great blessing to the rest of us, because now we have these records of Paul writing to try and help the church figure out what the church should look like. So Galatians is is one of the first letters that Paul writes. As a matter of fact, most scholars believe that Paul's letter to the Galatians is not just the, the oldest letter, right, written, uh, written earlier than anything else, 48 uh, AD, uh, written earlier than any of the letters that Paul writes, but it's perhaps written before any of the rest of the New Testament. So he had gone on his first missionary trip up into northern Turkey, that's where the area of the Gauls was, the Galatians, and he starts these churches, and then he... Uh, he travels around a little bit, and he writes a letter to the Galatians, probably right before or right after he goes back to Jerusalem for the first council, which is called the Jerusalem Council, and we read about it in Acts chapter 15. So Paul is aware that many non-Jews are coming to faith. And the question that this raises is, what does it look like for a Gentile to follow Jesus? Because up until Paul, the only people that are following Jesus are Jews. And so the question is, 
what exactly do you have to do to be right with God? And Paul says to people, you need faith in Christ. Period, full stop. That's it. You need to trust in God's love and mercy. You need to, you need to follow Christ. And what he's saying when he says that is, you do not need to act like a Jew, which is going to be the, the big issue in Galatians. So to be a Jew meant, right, you've got to be circumcised, you've you got to follow Jewish holy days, you have to, uh, there's, there's certain foods that you can not eat. There's, there's, a, there's all this custom of being a Jew. And so the Jews that are following Christ are often continuing to do these things. And so the Gentiles come along and they're like, who's, who's Moses? What's the law? Why circumcision? What's going on with all these things? What is it that I'm supposed to do? What does it look like to follow Christ? And Paul says, follow Christ. You put your faith in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift. We don't earn it. Well, Paul goes back to, the, to Jerusalem to check in with the, the church leadership there. That's where the other apostles are. And he says, I just want to be sure we're all saying the same thing. Now, God had already dealt with Peter. We read about this in Acts chapter 10. Peter's had this vision from God in a dream where all this unclean food comes down out of heaven and he's supposed to eat it and he says never I'll never do that and it happens again and then these Gentiles show up and they come to faith and the spirit of God fills them and so he's already had a conversation with people saying hey you know what Jesus had said this right that we'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world yeah this isn't just a Jewish story anymore it's the offer of Jesus is for everybody. They've already had this conversation. Paul shows up and they agree. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, period. Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to follow Christ. So then Paul heads back out. Paul and Barnabas have their falling out at this point, And Paul picks up Timothy and Luke and some other people. And they head out on the second missionary trip. And so he's doing the same thing, blowing to town, preaching the synagogue, then going to the marketplace, cause a riot, go to jail, write a letter. And, and Paul is on his pattern here. <clears throat> and, um, and he hears at this point that uh, two things have happened. One, Peter has stopped hanging out with Gentile Christians. Right? So Peter who had been hanging out with the Gentiles who don't have to act like Jews. So, and the Jews don't have to keep the law, right? We'll look at this. The Jews don't have to keep the kosher diet. So apparently Peter's hanging out having, you know, pork chops and BLTs and hanging out with the Gentiles and everything's fine. And then the Judaizers get a hold of him. And the Judaizers are an important an important part of our study of Galatians, the Judaizers say, in order for you to be right with God, you need to put your, tra you need to put your hope in Christ and you need to be religious. So your hope in Christ and you need to do certain religious practices. And they've gotten a hold of Peter. And Peter doesn't appear to change his thinking 
But Peter finds that it's just a whole lot easier to stop hanging out with the Gentile Christians. And Paul goes ballistic on Peter. And he calls him a coward, and he says, you can't do this. You, you, know, you know, he reads in the riot act. Additionally, Paul hears that the Judaizers have gone into the churches in Galatia. And they have said, uh, Paul was wrong. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't give you everything you need to hear. And Paul's sort of a second-class apostle, right? You really need to pay attention to Peter. And look, Peter isn't doing this anymore. And, and so he hears that the Judaizers are undermining the, the church that he has planted in Galatia. And so he writes this letter. He is mad, and so he comes out swinging, and, uh, and, it, and it deals with first century issues more than it deals with contemporary issues, but that's okay. So you get a lot about circumcision, which makes it a little bit of an awkward book to preach. Uh, and if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, ask the campus pastors. They'll fill you in. <laughs> no time in the sermon for that topic. So, so it's first century issues, which are not our issues. We're not worried about circumcision and kosher foods and Jewish holidays. But it's basically a question of, are we saved by trusting in Christ alone? Or is there religious stuff that we're supposed to do as well? Different religious stuff today, but religious stuff. And the letter is dense. Uh, it's six short chapters, but he goes after the biggest topics. And so in our study of Galatians, we, we look at how are we right with God? Like, how do I grow closer to God? How do I move into the presence of God? And, and he, here's the thing. Doing good is not bad, but it, it can lead to trouble. If you're doing good to earn God's favor, then that is a barrier in your relationship with God. The very thing you think is driving you closer to God is driving you away from God. And so we're, we're going to look at, at how we draw closer to God. We're going to look at how we are saved and reconciled. We're going to look at topics of grace. We look at freedom. How do I become free? What does freedom mean? What does it look like? to live a life that is free. How do I change? How do I do deep change in my life? Who is the Holy Spirit and how is he going to engineer change in my heart? These are the topics that come out in the book of Galatians. So, um, Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man. And so what you have to understand here is that Paul is just putting out his his credentials here. So there's some apostles are, apostle generically just means anyone sent by someone else that carries their authority. Jesus is the ultimate apostle. Anyone sent on a mission carrying the authority of the person that sent them. The the word apostle is often used to describe missionaries in areas that where no gospel work has been done. They're on an apostolic mission. But the, but the big way, and it's the most narrow way to use the word apostle refers to those people chosen by Christ and given, given power. They've seen the resurrected Christ and they have power and authority by Christ, among other things, to write the New Testament and to lead the church. And so Paul is saying, 
I'm an apostle, capital A apostle. And then just to make sure that he's not like a second class apostle, he says, sent not from men, nor by uh, a man. So he's saying, I did not get my credentials from Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. Right? I got my calling from Christ. I was called by Jesus. I am a capital A, fully qualified apostle. So, as a pastor, my goal is to speak for God. It's a crazy goal. The only thing crazier than saying that is to think that my goal should be something else. I mean, to think that people show up to hear what I think. Like, who cares what you think, right? No, my goal is to study the scriptures and then to try and communicate the scriptures in a way that makes sense. It's God's word. My goal is to, is to communicate God's word. But I cannot claim what Paul is claiming, right? I was called by men. I was trained by others, not by Jesus. So Paul is making a very big, audacious claim against the people who are saying, don't listen to Paul. He's not fully qualified to talk to you. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, um, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our uh, God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So, three things are happening here that, that, you need to, that you need to see that you probably don't see unless you've really been reading Paul. The first thing is that he leaves something out. <laughs> so, in every other letter, and Paul writes lots of letters, in every other letter, he says, Ah, Paul, he identifies himself and who he's with, and then he says something nice about the people he's writing to. I pray for you, I love you, I think about you every day, I, I remember you fondly. He says things nice about the Corinthians. Okay, the Corinthians, I mean, one of the things he has to say in his letter to the Corinthians is, by the way, you got a guy sleeping with his mom? Yeah, stop that. I mean, the Corinthians are a mess. The Galatians are religious. They're trying hard to be good and kind. The Galatians took care of Paul when he was sick. They nurtured him back to health. But he has nothing good to say to the Galatians. Right? He is so mad about what they are doing that he doesn't say anything nice. He, he crams the gospel in, and we're going to look at the gospel next week. And, and please understand this. I believe lots of you here think you understand the gospel, and you don't. And the gospel is not just how we come to faith. The gospel is something we need over and over and over and over again because our default mode is to be religious. And so we have to hear this over and over again. So he crams the gospel in here. It's not a, you know, it's, it's not the, the, the richest definition, but he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father. So this, this actually makes it the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters and it's the longest introduction with him leaving out saying anything nice. Because right? he comes out swinging and we get the scolding here in verse 6 right away. I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel, which is not the word that's used here. Is It's not a gospel at all. It's a different gospel that doesn't qualify as being a gospel. I'm astonished that you so quickly are going in absolutely the wrong direction. So Paul is going to let them have it. And we need to be ready for a, an important series. Paul is writing to people who are in the church, who have been baptized, who think they are Christians, who think they're doing the right things. And he says to them, oh my goodness, I can't believe how quickly you are messing everything up. And so we need to ask ourselves, is that me? Is that what I'm doing? And as I said, there are a lot of big, important topics that come in the book of Galatians. So we'll be in this book for the next three months. I want to encourage you this week to read it through. It's a short letter, six short chapters. Read it through a couple times. Be back next week. The the sermons will build on each other. I try to give sermons that are self-contained because people travel and they're not here every week. But, but this is a dense letter and it builds on itself. And so you got to sort of stay up to, to fully understand and appreciate what he's saying. And I would encourage you also, this is big, important news. Invite your friends. Let me pray for us. Father, may we um, understand you. May we understand your love. May we lean into your grace. May we embrace the gospel. Help us to see what we don't always see. Help us to fight our religious instincts. Help us to think that we are doing good things and therefore you love us because we're good and to try and hide the bad things that we do. Help us to get past all of the religious nonsense and to embrace the good news and to live it every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.